Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob. I've got Mastering the New Media Landscape, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset. And I've got Barbara Cave Hendricks with me and Rusty Shelton. And the reason I'm kind of excited about this show is that uh, Rusty was the first person as a professional publicist that got back to me when I was just building up the show many, many years ago. And uh, so they're very important to me because they're my first super fans of the show and uh, we wouldn't be here today without people like rusty so rusty thank you for being a cool guy and believing in the small guy our pleasure bob thanks for being such a, a great partner for us through the years we love your show okay so let's jump into it i know i've got a advanced copy but have you guys set on this for your your cover because i wanted to talk about the metaphor of the cover is this what your cover is going to look like that is pretty close to what the cover will look like. You're you're looking at a galley and there was just a little bit of a tweak on the final, but the image of the staircase is, I assume, what you're referring to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Barbara, why a staircase? So, metaphorically, that staircase is sort of moving you from the media world in which we used to exist, which consists of things everyone's very familiar with, radio, television, magazines, newspapers, so-called traditional or legacy media. The staircase should take you to the new media landscape, which is full of many more outlets. So there's two fundamental shifts in this new media landscape. One is that the gatekeepers are gone. Media used to be controlled by very large outlets that were controlled by gatekeepers who decided what was news and what wasn't. That is now gone. Um, the Internet has essentially given us a canvas in which all of us can broadcast our own messages. So that's the shift that we're seeing. And what has happened with that change is now we have millions of what are called micromedia outlets or what we are calling that. And a micromedia outlet is very simply everyone. Everyone who can hold a smartphone in their hand can be part cameraman, part commentator. You know, they can immediately go to the public stage themselves. So a micromedia outlet is just that, someone sending messages on this new landscape. So, you know, that's it's interesting because, you know, I've got two teenage daughters and they're on their device all the time to the point where I stick my head in at one o'clock in the morning and say, OK, guys, come on, try and get some sleep. <laughs> um, do you think the overall age of the people that you're communicating to has done a radical shift from uh, the people that are the gatekeepers, which are usually senior management? down to some very, very powerful, powerful and influential teenagers. And I'm going to throw this one over to Rusty. Absolutely, Bob. Well, I think, you know, certainly uh, teenagers are, are in many ways the new tastemakers in the micromedia environment. But, you know, you still have a lot of, um, I, I think there's a common perception that, you know, 50 and over uh, people aren't, aren't active online or aren't as active online. And, you know, I, I think... Uh, in terms of the amount of time specifically spent online, teenagers probably have them beat. But uh, really, across the entire, uh, you know, across every demographic, we we're seeing, you know, certainly growth in the amount of time people are spending online. I think that the thing for Barbara and I that really 
um, you know, got us very interested in this topic area is reality is in today's media landscape, the, the first place uh, that most people are going to have an impression of you. So the first impression of you and your brand is not going to happen in person. Uh, it won't happen over the phone typically. Uh, it, it's going to happen online. And typically that first impression is made on page one of Google or on your website or on your social media channels. And I think there's a lot of people out there that um, that either aren't aware of that or don't take that seriously. But uh, for, for the amount of people that are calling your business or the amount of people that are reaching out to you online, if you're uh, if you're looking to do speaking or consulting, there are a large amount of people who might have have clicked through to your website or might have have seen page one of Google and for one reason or another, you know, didn't make that call because of what they found there. And so, one of the big things that we encourage people to think about in this media environment, whether it's a teenager, you know, at eleven o'clock at night that's that's reading a blog on their smartphone, or whether it's a uh, a VP of marketing at a company that could hire you uh, to come in for a six-figure consulting engagement. They are making judgments on on you and your brand based on what they find online. And so we really encourage people to not only be aware of what kind of impression that they're making, but really control it effectively. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the book. Let's talk about relationships, guys. How important is it to uh, build a community that enables you to talk specifically to a group of people and build trust. So before we get too much into the book, let's define community and trust. Uh, Barbara, let's have you handle trust and Rusty that you can do community just after that. I think trust is an interesting concept when we get into communicating. So essentially in this environment, we're communicating with our customers, our clients um, all the time online. So in order for your client that you to trust you, um, you have to be very clear in your communication. You have to be very authentic. You have to give them content that they can use. Um, it's very interesting when you, when people come to us and say, hey, I want to start a blog. You know, I want people to value my brand. I want them, you know, to, to feel something about it. And I think trust is a component of that. I always say, you know, then you need to be, use the skills that journalists have. They write things that are clear and concise and credible. They make sure that they have another person or another set of eyes look at those before they put anything out sort of on the public stage that now exists on the internet. And third, I think they provide something that's of value to their customer. So when they come out, they are already establishing this nice credibility of, oh, this person gives me content that I'm interested in. It's always credible. It's been fact check. Um, and and it comes to me in a way that's valuable to me. I think the final, final piece of that is that, you know, when you build those three components, you also need to build in an opinion. So, you know, we're, we're teaching people all the time, basically, to now be layman journalists. You're now contributing the way a newspaper columnist would have. And when you do that, um, you need to do it in a way that you are making sure you hit all of those prongs at once. Hmm. Okay, Rusty, your turn. Sure. On, on the community front, so when we set the subtitle for the book, Embrace the Micromedia Mindset, we really had community in mind with that subtitle. So when we think about that idea of a micromedia mindset, the thought process there, Bob, is uh, it, it's important for people to really think more like media executives than marketers in today's media landscape. And when I say that, uh, what Barbara and I mean there is uh, instead of trying to impress somebody once or instead of trying to make an initial sale and, and with that being the end goal, what's much more valuable and what provides 
your listeners with much more leverage going forward is, is actually not that initial sale. It, it, it's gaining a subscriber or a member of your community with the idea that if I extend the interaction uh, with this person who's interested in my topic area, not only am I going to have the opportunity, yes, to, to, to sell them things in the future that will help them uh, with their business or in their life, but also what I'm, what I'm perhaps even more interested in is that person's engagement and willingness to, to, to not only, you know, comment on a blog post but share it and bring in other community members. And somebody that we profile in the book, uh, a guy named John Acuff, who's a well-known speaker and best-selling author. Uh, his most recent book is a book called Do Over. And John, over the last uh, several years, has built a huge online community. And what, what stood out to us about John, and I think a lot of people, when they think of the new media landscape, they immediately think social media or, or online activities. And, and certainly that's a huge part of it. Uh, but one of the cool things that John has done is in addition to having a great blog and, and you know, being active across social media, what John does when he goes to give a speech at a company or he goes to do an event in a certain city is he always hosts a meetup. And the idea with an in-person meetup is to empower members of his community to, to bring their friends or bring their coworkers. And this meetup that he typically does, he'll, he'll host it, he'll give about 15, 20, 30 minutes of content, and then he'll open it up and allow audience members to talk about what they're working on and, and share a do-over story if they have that. And so John's opinion is certainly the the online uh, landscape is a great place to, to efficiently build community, but uh, his opinion and one of the things that we talk a little bit about in the book is it doesn't always start online. A lot of people that join his community actually start out in person. And so a, a big thing that we talk about in the book is this idea that there's no there's no one single way to do this and, and it's important for people to understand as they're looking to build an audience or build a community oftentimes that does start in person sometimes it starts on Twitter sometimes it starts on the blog but the mindset really has to be around not marketing to somebody or not making that initial sale only the idea is how do I instead uh, get this person to um, to subscribe to the email list to to become a long term member of the community where they're engaged in in ideally sharing it with with their friends and family. You know, it, it's interesting because what you described a lot of those tactics, those techniques, is something that you should be doing if you're doing business networking. When you're going out, you're going to meetings, you're shaking people's hands, and you're not trying to sell all these people in the room. You're trying to find like-minded people. You're trying to connect with them. And then you're trying to, uh, basically what you're trying to sell is your next appointment. Let's go have a coffee. Let's uh, figure out uh, what's going in that on in that book that we both talked about type of thing. And you're trying to connect on an emotional level with the ability to continue connecting with your um, social media outreach and those type of things just enables you just to keep the conversation going, but in a very efficient way. So it's not a one-on-one -on -one telephone conversation. It's one on 500 or one on 20 uh, relationship you've got because you're posting photographs or you're posting comments or you're posting tips and tricks. So Barbara, how important is it to consider building your audience slowly over a long period of time instead of like, wow, big, huge campaign. I'm a superstar. Uh, like everybody thinks it happens. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, that is a myth <laughs> that it just happens overnight. You know, those those big myths, those big silver bullets in the media world really are that they're they're mythical. So, yes, building community is 
is definitely a process. And you mentioned social media channels. This is an excellent way to start. Um, Many of the books that we work on are business books. um, And typically there are two big platforms that I consider key to sort of start your relationship building there in the social media world. And those would be Twitter and LinkedIn. So LinkedIn has really moved from being a resume posting service to someplace that wants to be a content posting service. So LinkedIn is a very good place now to go and connect with like-minded professionals. You can post content there. If you're very innovative, you'll begin to think visually. So you might put your next slide deck up there. You might see if you've got a clip of video. Um, You can also join groups there. So LinkedIn is becoming a platform where people come together. The other place is Twitter. So recent studies show us that about 89% of journalists are looking online when they want to get secondary sources for their stories. So also most of those journalists rely on having a lot of people look at their work and comment. So many journalists now are required to have um, a Twitter account. So engaging there is a good place to sort of, again, join a conversation. It's not a place to pitch. You can start with 10, 20, 30 reporters who cover your field or your subject and start doing some listening in. And by listening, I mean watching the conversation, seeing what the etiquette is like, um, and then responding authentically, you know, saying, hey, oh, wow, I really like that piece. That was an interesting point. Or I have this this short comment to add and responding to them there. And yes, the, the, basically, you know, start this slowly and look at this as a long haul activity. Consider yourself building your own community. Rusty talks a lot about, and we both do, about as you build that community up, what you're trying to do is basically build it up, capture it, and then lead it over to space that you own, to your own website, to your own email address. So you can do what you mentioned, which is the next time you have a product, an offering, a service, a book, specifically for that audience you built up, then you have a place to to share it with them. You know, as soon as you said that, I just uh, I, I just remembered something I'm doing all the time, and and uh, I was at a big event a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned it to this one guy, and it blew his mind. And that's basically leveraging your content. I think a lot of times people, when they're doing uh, blog posts or or, or creating uh, things for people to discover on the on the internet and social platforms, is that oh, I've done this post, then I I've got to find another one. I've got to, they they're constantly having to reinvent the wheel instead of doing a short series or creating stuff that's got a little bit of of, um, long-term integrity and then utilizing that information to basically uh, answer questions. So, you know, I'll go online and somebody will ask a question. They'll be having a discussion. So, oh, you know what? That sounds just like a book I did a, a podcast on. You should check it out here and uh, it might help you guys out. Boom. And I put the link to that specific interview. And what that does is is it turns me into a librarian recommending a great book or, uh, you know, recommending a great piece of content that is uh, in tune with what they're discussing. So I'm not really selling my uh, podcast at that particular time, I'm just introducing it in a way that might help everybody that's following that post understand the subject matter a little bit more. And that's completely different than being a huckster and say, oh, you should check this out. It's amazing. And be talking to people that don't really care. So based on that, what do you guys think is the best strategy for creating content online in these uh 
micromedia sites and, and as micromedia producers, what is the best thing for people to do? So I'll get Rusty to start off on this one. Bob, I th- see, I think you're actually a really good example of, of how to do this right. So uh, w- when we think about social media or, or rented media, as we talk about it in the book, the, the idea there is to really use it as a relationship building tool. So I think a lot of people approach their content online uh, as if the only focus should be their perspective on things. And, and I use this as an example to really think about um, your online content in many ways is, is kind of like your newspaper. And what I typically see in terms of the content strategy for uh, for a lot of people out there that are looking to build an audience is it's essentially a newspaper filled with op-eds. In other words, it's it's only their perspective on things. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opinion. There's a lot of um, you know, really looking at somebody's own IP. And certainly there's a place for that, just like there is in a newspaper, but it really needs to be a piece of the content strategy. So um, a good newspaper is going to include not only that op-ed page, but a lot of a lot of interviews with people, a lot of articles where you're bringing in uh, the different perspective from, from other experts in the field. Uh, newspapers talk about what is newsworthy that day, so really looking at what's of interest to uh, to your target audience and in your topic area. And, and Barbara and I really talk about breaking down a content strategy uh, with a focus on three separate um, categories. So category number one for us is relationship building. And it's really what you've done really well, Bob. And it's uh, it's inviting people in to do interviews. It's recommending books. And in doing so, uh, when you interview somebody, when that podcast posts or when that uh, blog interview posts, certainly the person that you've interviewed is driving their entire audience over to your website or over to your podcast to download it or to read that blog post. So relationship building not only allows you to build a really intentional relationship with uh, perhaps a high-value thought leader, but also uh, to attract a similar audience. Uh, it, it also really builds a lot of goodwill with people. So uh, for us, relationship building content is category one. Category number two for us is uh, something that David Meerman Scott calls newsjacking. And the idea there is to really look at what, what are the topics that are most newsworthy in your topic area and how do you take those and connect it back to your message. Um, this is a, a lot of what we would think of in a newspaper as kind of the bulk of articles there, which is this is a something that, that's happening very large in my topic area and I'm going to connect it back to uh, to my own perspective. And then the last category is what we think of as evergreen content. And, and this is really where we get back into the op-ed. So five ways uh, leaders can, uh, you know, can be better at speaking in public or three questions that um, you know that moms need to ask themselves heading into the new school year, whatever it may be. That's that's really timeless content. And so, in breaking it up in those three categories, you've got a spot there for your own perspective. But two of the three categories are really focused more on giving back to others and providing value. And in in many ways, in this media landscape, that's the only way that you're going to attract any engagement. I wanted to ask Barbara: Do you think that the traditional press release has changed and? Um, should people be actually be creating two types of press releases, one which is social media savvy and one which is more of the traditional approach? I don't think they need to be truncated that way. So the press release itself, I think, is a useful tool because predominantly journalists don't have the time to read an entire book um, when they sit down and interview someone. If they're, if they're not reviewing the book, chances are they're probably not reading all of it. So a good press kit is actually the spark notes or cliff notes, depending on what generation you're part of, um, to the book. 
it really, someone can read it and have an informed 30 minute conversation with an author that covers the main points. That's the goal of a press release. What's really changed though, is the way you pitch journalists. So back many years ago, more than I'd care to recount, <laughs> we used to have to put together briefing books for people. So if you're sending Larry Bossidy into an interview, you have already compiled a briefing book for him that tells him what were the last five interviews that television journalists did? What areas do they report on most specifically? What were the last five things they said about Honeywell? We had to compile these really complex reports. Now, all of that information, which frankly, that information is what you need to pitch someone well. So when I pitch someone and I'm sending them an email, what I'm doing is going, the first place I go is page one of Google, which is what tells me what your brand is, but it also tells me what that reporter wrote about, what last five stories they wrote, what specifically their beat is, and possibly even a few things that they're personally interested in that they happen to mention. So before I sit down to pitch a story to a journalist, whether they write for Salon or the New York Times or Seth Godin's blog, I'm going to go read about the journalist and send them a very customized pitch. I'm not going in the door and saying, hey, I have a new book. Will you cover me? That says nothing. I would say, hey, I saw you did a story about customer service and specifically about customer feedback, responding to customer feedback in the digital age. I'm working with an author who wrote a book on X. In chapter four, she talks about why, which might be an interesting angle to go. Any interest? So what we do now and what really works is very, very, very customized pitching. So I put that up at the top. Beneath my signature, I'll embed a longer paragraph that describes more about the book and then a bio. So the press release goes with the physical copies of the book, or they get attached as a JPEG if you're promoting an ebook, or they might get attached to a pitch you're doing on the latest product coming out from your small business. But what really sells it is that short 90 words. It doesn't have to do really with you know, the media itself being traditional or social, it has more to do with, hey, I know you, Mr. Journalist, Miss Journalist, I know what you're writing, and here's why you should be interested in what I'm talking about today. That's what I think's really shifted. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that's so true is, is I remember back in the day when I was uh, designing magazines, one of the things that really stuck out is anybody that was sending us a press release that came with an interesting photograph uh, and then kind of did 90% of the, my job for me was highly appreciated because I'm under deadline all the time and you always have people uh, pulling out at the last second. You've got space in your magazine you have to fill uh, where ads have disappeared. So uh, when I ran into people that were in the, in the PR game, they would come and they would say, Bob, how come you never feature our stuff in the magazines, well, you don't really do much of a job. You're just kind of lazy. And the more stuff you can give me to make my job easier, the higher chance is I'm going to grab it because you're a solution. Do you still still think that's uh, true today? Absolutely. I think journalists are in search of people who can be valuable to them when they need them. So the more you can position yourself, the easier you make it to find you. So if you're discoverable online, if you go to your website, your LinkedIn, you, you know, forget about the blind box and put your own email address there because a journalist on deadline is not going to send to some anonymous box. When you talk to them, even if you are promoting something new, 
listen to what they want first. So be an expert for them and then, you know, be available, be willing to talk to them. Think about being of value to them rather about what they can do for you in promoting. I guarantee you the first approach will work better than the second. Mm. And, you know, it's ironic. You can you can give people great advice till you're blue in the face, but until they're ready to actually use that advice and trust you, uh, they're not going to move off that spot, which is, you know, a little frustrating for some people that just don't get it. You got to jump in the deep end to discover what swimming is really like. Agreed. So let's talk about the one word that's been used several times and people are like, what? Let's define the word micromedia. So I'm going to throw this uh, to both of you. Let's start with Barbara. To you, what is micromedia? Micromedia is all of the outlets that have joined those in the traditional spectrum. They've redefined, it's essentially shifted from mass media, which is what we used to call it, mass media or mass communications, to micro. So these are outlets that range in size from the online outlet that accompanies a traditional publication like the New York Times to NewYorkTimes.com to individuals and brands. So Bob Garlick's radio show, um, Seth Godin's blog. There are thousands of examples. Everyone today who is online creating content in some sort of home is a media outlet. All right. So, Rusty, what or how would you define that word? Uh, is it slightly different or is it basically the same? I think I think Barbara's exactly right there, Bob. So everybody listening to this show, um, whether they, they recognize it or not, they're a media outlet. If they're only putting content out on Facebook, uh, there are a number of people there that are that are looking to that content and either rolling their eyes in disgust or engaging, liking, and sharing it. And so, uh, it's this idea that every brand and every individual out there, again, whether they know it or not, is a media outlet. And so, uh, what we encourage people to do in the book is to embrace that opportunity and understand that as a media outlet, the way that you build up leverage in this environment is to grow the size of your audience and not just to grow the number of people that you reach, Bob, but also to understand that it's really important to control the connection to that audience. So one of the big things that that Barbara and I lay out in the book is a, is a framework around no longer dividing media into what we think of as old categories of traditional versus digital or social media versus legacy media, but it's this idea of organizing media into three categories. We call them earned media, rented media, and owned media. And in this new media landscape, everything falls into one of those three categories. Um, and let me define those just quickly for the audience. So owned media, as Barbara alluded to earlier, is are all the channels uh, that you personally own. So in other words, your website, if it's hosted on a URL that you own, your blog, if it's hosted on a URL that you own, your email list, if you have a physical newsletter that gets mailed out, that mailing list. So owned media are, is that connection to your audience that you own. And one of the things that we uh, discuss in the book is this idea that that is absolutely um, the the most important for you to really be intentional about growing. Um, unlike a lot of books that, that do focus on the digital environment, we spend a lot of time also talking about how important earned media is. And earned media, as the second category here, is really looking at uh, publicity opportunities. So an NPR interview or a review in the Wall Street Journal or 
um, you know, an opportunity for a feature story in USA Today, um, things that you have to earn. It could also be an influencer shout out. So uh, Seth Godin uh, tweeting about your book or Bob Garlick uh, hosting you on, on his podcast. Um, so earned media is something that you can't obtain it unless somebody else gives you permission. As a result of that, there's a huge amount of implied credibility that goes along with earned media. The challenge with earned media, Bob, and, and a lot of people put all of their eggs in that earned media or PR basket. The challenge is you never know for sure that somebody's going to invite you up on, on their stage. And so when you put all of your eggs in that basket and you don't have your own email list or your own audience to go to, uh, it, it's, it's a hard thing to obtain. The third category for us is what we call rented media. And so it's this idea that your social media channels out there, online review sites like Yelp, uh, rented media, a lot of people think, well, it's, it's my Facebook account or it's my Twitter uh, feed. And it, to some extent, that's true. You control a lot of the content there, et cetera. But it's important to understand that your Facebook page, your Twitter account is really sitting on real estate that somebody else owns. And so Facebook in an instant with their 2013 algorithm change completely limited the access that they gave that that they gave to brands to reach their audience on Facebook. And so it's this idea within rented media that it's important to use that to to build an audience, but you always want to have a bit of a magnet to where if you build a relationship on Twitter, you build a relationship on Facebook, you want to be driving those people back to owned media where you do have that 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 ownership over the connection with your audience. Hmm. Uh, you know, deadly true. Uh, I'm actually curious, do you look at this book uh, for people that are just getting into uh, you know, the new media landscape or for people that are in it already and are a little bit advanced? Where, where do you think? Do you still think there's people out there that just don't even get the fundamentals yet and that's why a book like this is important? I actually think it is for both audiences. And the reason is, is that there's been a lot of attention focused on sort of two circles. And, and Rusty just alluded to the three. So most people think, okay, I will do a PR campaign that focuses on earned media. I will go solely there. Or I will hire somebody or ramp up my social media um, efforts around the launch of a product or a new offering or even a new business, new restaurant, anything that's coming out that's new. I think what this book does is, first of all, it introduces the new category in the middle, which is the rented media. Okay, so that's social media rented. Then there's the earned. And I'm sorry, the third category is your owned. So, you know, there's this strategy. So what I think this book does, if you know nothing about it, it definitely lays out the landscape and helps you understand what each one does. What the book does is teach you how they relate to one another. So in essence, those three earned, owned, and rented feed one another in a circle. So what you do in rented space, with micromedia outlets, anywhere where you're over here, starts to magnify your message, which may get you the attention of traditional or earned media, which in turn may have people going to look for you and taking a look at your blog that you have up or your website. So they feed each other. The other thing, as Rusty just said, is that earned and rented should also point to owned. So your idea is every time you're using something, every time you're appearing, every time you're doing something, you're trying to draw audience back to this circle of your own space. And I think that strategy, no matter how advanced you are, is a little bit of a different way to think about it. So I think the book does apply on both fronts. 
I want to ask you, Barbara, for you, you know, putting this information together and, and, and what's kind of exciting about this book is that you're actually doing the things that you've put in the book. But for you, what was your aha moment where it's like, wow, you know, I do this every day, but now I really, really get it. I think the whole thing has been an aha moment. You know, <laughs> after more than 20 years of working with people with books, I really felt that I had worked at publishers. I had watched this process from many different shares, but I had never sat on the other side of the desk. So I think that has given me new empathy. I also think it really has taught me. I, I gave myself the challenge when the book was finished was just to start writing and contributing to our company blog every two weeks. And I will say that the first two or three months of that really felt like a slog. I thought, wow, this is just really tough. Now, six months into that, which is, you know, about where we are right now, I find it comes to me much more easily. I find that my Twitter following grew. I found that, you know, in actually focusing on this, yes, what we tell others to do most decidedly works, which was a very reassuring feeling. Um, anyone who's a parent knows it's far easier to tell someone what to do than to behave in a way that others can emulate. I think this has been that moment to step to the front and say, okay, let me see how it works for me. And it's been very interesting. Do you find that uh, when you have a, a new author come in or, or even a, a, an experienced author come in, they say, I've got a new book, you, your eyes tear up and you reach across the table and say, you poor bastard, I know exactly <laughs> what you're about to go through. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, I don't think I've I ever think, thought that. <laughs> well, and it's been a learning experience. You know, Barbara and I have spent a lot of our careers working with authors, and it's been interesting for us to flip on the other side of the table, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and work on the book. And of course, we were fortunate that, that we had co-authors, and um, you know, I, I know that I don't think I would have gotten through this book were it not for for Barbara's help. But it's and it's a hard hard process doing it, and so I've got a, it's certainly a newfound respect for. For a lot of our clients in, in just sitting down and, and producing it. And, um, you know, our hope and Barbara and I, the reason that we put this together is we got very similar questions from, uh, from a lot of our clients and a lot of the audiences that we went out and spoke with. And uh, what we felt like was kind of an old understanding of what works in marketing and PR. And uh, we're hoping that this book for a lot of people opens some, some eyes and really empowers people to, to get out there and build an audience and, and spread you know, important messages because we've seen you know, far too often people will spend a lot of money or a lot of time uh, doing things that, that might have worked five or ten years ago but just aren't working today. Uh, do you feel a book is a fancy business card? It's certainly a good way, uh, Bob, for us to educate, you know, clients and potential clients, but books as business cards, you know, certainly there's plenty of people out there that, that think of them that way. Uh, and this is, I know one thing that Barbara is really passionate about, but, uh, when those come across our desks, we, we typically do the, the same thing that media, uh, do, which is, you know, do, do a quick glance and say, oh, you know what, this is this is just a fancy business card and cast it to the side. So uh, I'll, I'll let Barbara expand upon that. But it, it can be a business card and our suggestion would be don't do it that way. Yes. So I think Rusty's right. So when people work with you, want to talk to you, have purchased your services or hearing you give a talk or presentation, the book is certainly the thing that you would love to leave them with, that they walk out the door, they purchase one or there's one on their chair. But a book that is nothing but a business card, all it does in its pages is try to sell your services. So in other words, it doesn't really give people content. It basically says, hey, here's what we do. Here's why it's so great. And this is why you should hire us. Okay. And of those three things, 
none of those three things are really valuable to anyone. So as I always say, give away everything you can in the book because people will still want to buy the service. So, you know, not everything can you do it yourself. How many times have you started a project around the house, do it yourself? You know, I can do this myself. And, you know, four hours later, you've got the carpet ripped up and the, you know, floorboards out. Giving your ideas, putting your best ideas between covers is what a book should be. A book should not be hire me, hire me, hire me, hire me on every page. So that's where I think the distinction lies. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, that that applies to everything we've just been talking about, you know, in, in the micromedia uh, platform is that it's not about you. It's about them. And, and 90% of the time, if I'm sitting down with a client, the first thing I ask is, let's take a look at your web page. We'll look at their web page and say, okay, out of all this stuff you've got on the landing page, where are you giving back? And guarantee you, 99.9% people fail unless they're really good at what they're doing. And then nine times out of 10, I can't help them. They can save some money. So do you feel that the book should have that approach when you're working with an author and you, you look at their manuscripts? You know, this is nice, but we need you to completely rewrite this with this in mind. Uh, is that important these days? with your social media outreach as well. Rusty, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think it absolutely is. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the mindset that you talked about there, Bob, around um, really focusing on your audience and providing them value as opposed to thinking, you know, with, with kind of a me first approach. And I think a lot of the people listening right now, you know, when they, when they take a quick look at their Facebook feed or their Twitter feed or even their LinkedIn uh, wall, the, the, the reality is that many people are approaching their content with that kind of a me first uh, approach. And it, it just doesn't work well. Uh, we use a, an example in the book where we talk about this idea that, um, you know, when, when you start to, to build an audience, it's like taking the stage in your own auditorium. And when you start off with your blog or your podcast, um, you've got a couple of people in the front rows, your friends and family who have to be there. They're there cheering you on. But for the most part, that auditorium is empty. And as you start to pull people in and you have people that, that click through and, and visit a blog or you have people that, uh, that head in after a speaking engagement, what I would encourage your audience to think of is it's like those people are walking into to your auditorium. And when they get in, based on the quality of the website, the quality of the content there, and what you're saying from the stage, um, they're going to make a decision quickly on whether or not they should sit down, which is what we think of as subscribing to your email list or subscribing to the blog, or to turn around and hit that back button in their browser and head right back out the door. And so the quality of the content and thinking, again, like a media outlet uh, with a focus on providing value to your subscribers is the only way to get ahead in, in this media landscape. You know, you, you did two things there, and, and I think it's important. I'm going to ask Barbara to, to, to redefine them as well. Um, you talked yourself as a media outlet, and I think the problem is when people think, oh, yeah, media outlet, I'll be like a media outlet, they're thinking of what they see on TV. They're thinking of their perception of what a media outlet is compared to you guys um, who really have a much better perspective of what a media outlet is. So, um how should people perceive it? And, and and this is a tough question because it's like, how do you imagine um, what a media outlet is? Is it a room full of a bunch of professionals? Is it this exciting dynamic environment? 
or is a media outlet a source of factual, uh, useful information for a defined demographic? So, Barbara, you know, can you define for our listeners how they should perceive the concept of a media outlet? Yes. So a media outlet, I think, is exactly what you said. It's, and I think Rusty alluded to as well. Think of anything you do on social media as being parallel to what traditional media does, which is provide valuable information to their readers, viewers, and listeners. So they are all about news you can use. So when you start thinking of yourself or your brand or your business as, you know, a hub and as some, as a, an organization creating content to go out, that content should be interesting. It should be informative. It should be valuable. I think that's the three things. Um, yes, to entertain. I think entertain is the hardest probably of those four. Um, but yes, you should be thinking of yourself. I'm going to provide content. I'm going to provide commentary. I'm going to provide information that's valuable because that's what drive pe- drives people back again and again and again. Um, and Rusty, you might want to talk about this. You know, when you pull people in and you're saying, here, I've got this great newspaper. My newspaper is my website and it's got all this stuff you can use. It needs to have something that people come back for. Um, it needs to do more than just take a look at the homepage. So when you think of a media outlet, you don't need to be entertainment tonight, but you do need to be doing something other than just, you know, giving an op-ed or a monologue. Rusty, what do you think? I think that's exactly right. And and when we say think like a media outlet, we we don't mean to overwhelm people with that. And this idea that you've got to be, you know, real fancy or, or, (laughs) you know, spend a ton of money on a website, that's not what we mean. What we mean there is instead to... Um, to really focus in on providing entertaining and informative content to your audience. So uh, with the idea that the only people that are going to stay engaged are people that are genuinely getting value from your content. It's the same thing that newspapers think about. How do we not only keep our subscribers, but expand that subscriber base? And so for us, it's really about not thinking about what you personally want to promote, but instead thinking about what is going to give your audience value. And as you build value with them, you're going to get more and more attention, more and more people in the seats of your auditorium. And uh, that's when it really starts to self-propel. Okay, Barbara, for our listening audience, what should they do today, besides buy your book, uh, to start them on the road to being successful uh, company that that embraces uh, micro minds, micromedia mindset and understands the power of this basic list revolution that we're, we're in the process of, of being swept away with? Well, I'm going to steal this directly from my co-author, Rusty Shelton, ah. which is go out and buy your URL. So if you do not already own your name, firstnamelastname.com, um, go out and do that today. Put a placeholder, put a stake in the ground. Buy it for everyone in your family, particularly young children. This is real estate that's very valuable right now. It's going to be even more valuable. Um, this is a very, you know, essential, quick, clean tool. I have an unusual last name, Hendricks. Um, Lots of people type my name and do Hendricks. Rusty was the first person who told me you should not only own barbarahendricks.com, you should also own the misspelling of your name to direct back. Um, So basically, that's the first thing you can do that's quick and easy is hold on to it. Basically, you're putting a placeholder on your own personal brand. You know, that's interesting because uh, when my children were born, and uh, one of them is now 17, they've owned 
uh, their last name and first name, Gmail account, and .com for 17 years, one of them, and for 15 years for the other one. And uh, it's been an investment of $270. And they don't realize it, but they own an incredibly important piece of uh, property for the internet because not only is it their name, but it's been around a long time. And one thing about the Google algorithms, they love something with long-term integrity. Rusty, what would you tell our listening audience so that they can move forward and uh, become superstars? And I, I'm, I'm being cringeworthy, cringeworthy here, but really, <laughs> um, you know, what should you know a, a small business person do, or or a manager or CEO do to become uh, a new media? And I don't want to say master because I, I think that's BS, but really utilize the opportunity that's in front of them. Sure. Well, the first thing that I would say is I would really encourage uh, your listeners to to um, to put that content strategy that we talked about earlier in this conversation in place. So, uh, for those people that have a blog, my guess is many of your listeners may have approached it similar to a lot of the, the folks that we see, and, and certainly I've been guilty of this too, which is filling a newspaper with op-eds. So, I would encourage people really to make a shift in their content strategy to how do I use my blog as a relationship building tool? Can I start an interview series with uh, with the top experts that? Um, you know that might make up business development targets, or might have access right now to a, an auditorium full of people. That when you interview them, that they are able to point that audience over to your auditorium and send them in there to see that interview. So uh, I would encourage people really to expand a content strategy and think about it in terms of uh, their online platform as a relationship building tool. The other thing I would encourage people to do is what Barbara and I call an online brand audit. So uh, to really be clear and conscious of when somebody searches your name online, if I've passed your name to a New York Times reporter and I told them that that you are the perfect expert for an article that they're working on, if they put your name into Google, can you be found right now? And if you can be found, is there an easy and clear way for that reporter to reach out to you directly? Um, So that's part of, as Barbara mentioned, owning your URL, but it's really around owning discoverability around whether it's your name or your business name and ensuring that if people are looking for you online that you can be found and the impression that you're making is one that that encourages someone to make a call as opposed to encouraging them to look for another resource. Um, I just want to mention one thing before we go today. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, Twitter, we've talked about LinkedIn. Facebook has not been brought up. Do you think Facebook is too crowded, too controlled, and not really uh, a way to be reaching out to an audience, or, or do you think it's just a phenomenal waste of time? I, th- I think Facebook's a great place to be, Bob, once, once people know to look for you. So in other words, it's a great place for well-known brands and well-known personalities. I see a lot of people who are just getting started and building up their, uh, their platform waste a lot of time and energy on Facebook. Facebook, just the etiquette of the site, it, we're on Facebook to stay in touch with, with people that we already know that we like. So we're, we're not there to take a chance on, on somebody new. So uh, I encourage people, we, we often think of rented media as living on a spectrum between relationship-sustaining sites like Facebook, great place to be, to, to continue a connection with people that you have already built, want, built a relationship with, versus Twitter, which is on the other end of the spectrum, which is really focused on building relationships with people that, that you may not know yet. Uh, LinkedIn for us sits right in the middle, so it's a little bit of both. Um, so, so Facebook certainly 
everybody listening to to this podcast, I would venture to say, has at least a Facebook profile. Uh, nothing, you know, has has stories or or articles that that um, you know nothing drives those articles to more shares than Facebook. So we've got to be there, but it, it's a small piece of your content strategy until people know to look for you. Hmm. So Barbara, um, that being said. People have a limited amount of time. If they're going to dedicate X amount of uh, hours per week towards building up an audience or, or, or just you know reaching out, what do you think is a better platform for them? Uh, is it LinkedIn or should they be looking at Twitter? I think they should be looking at both. And I think, you know, everyone does face that. We certainly, you know, everyone now says, oh, no, I don't want to start wading into that social media space. I don't know where to start. It eats up my time. I think I think a, a new mindset is needed on this as well. So you commit it to a regular time of day, a morning check-in, you start watching at least two feeds um, and, you know, clean those up, start participating on them, watch them, figure out realistically, does that take you 20 minutes in the morning? Does it take you 30? Um, set this up and make it as regular a part of your day as going through your email. Put it on your calendar, time block a half an hour. So I'm going to spend 30 minutes. I'm going to read this site, this site, this site. Then I'm going to check my LinkedIn. I'm going to add my new clients or those last five people whose business cards I've been carrying around. Then I'm going to go over to Twitter and take a look at all the feeds that I watch on Twitter and listen to that conversation and see if there's anything I want to jump in. So I think social media is much more manageable when you think of it as routine, not an added thing to smack on top of a day where that may and probably is already packed. Yeah, and I think you'll have a better attitude. I mean, it, it's like a, I think a lot of people fail uh, in social media and don't even realize it because they say, oh, now I've got to do this. It should be just part of your lifestyle. And I do remember chatting with a guy many, many years ago, and he basically said, you can do social media like tweeting uh, anytime anywhere so if you're on a bus or you're waiting for somebody to pick you up or immediate and you've got 10 minutes and somebody's late that's fantastic news these days you're not wasting your time you actually get on twitter make a couple of comments you you communicate with your audience and then you're done and you have your meeting and look you, you slipped in a little bit of social media all right we've been listening to barbara and rusty talk about their new book mastering the new media landscape embrace the micromedia mindset and for gosh sake, if you have not embraced it, this book is a must-have. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks so much for having us, Bob. This was a great deal of fun. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.